Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio, and this is a this is a special day. This is something that's never been done before, um, and it's only being done because we're down a guy. But we have a podcast episode today that comprises the entire current theology department of Wisconsin Lutheran College. Um, we're supposed to be at five guys. We're working on that. We've never had all five, but now we've got four. Mm-hmm. So we're going to count this as an unofficial department meeting. How does that sound? <laughs> yeah. Mike is our sounds, current sounds good. department head, yeah. um, so he will be uh, in charge of should any motions arise. Yes, okay. I would like to make a motion to terminate Jason's call. <laughs> Anybody want a second? No? Okay. All right. <laughs> Unsuccessful meeting again. Yeah. Um, but we have the whole entire theology department here, and in just a moment we will introduce you then to our guests that we're very happy to have with us. Um, Let the Bird Fly is a podcast of the 1517 Podcasting Network. You can go to 1517.org, find all sorts of good stuff there, lots of other podcasts. I was talking to someone the other day. I was doing a Tuesday night Bible class at St. John's in Milwaukee where my kids had gone to school and we were going through the life of Luther. And we had some former students there, which is always great. And they were asking about an apologetics podcast, and I pointed them to the the Faith and Reason with... uh, Francisco and Anderson, right? And uh, I just, we had the last class the other day, and they said, oh, man, we've made our way through a bunch of those episodes. They were really enjoying them. Lots of podcasts you can check out, uh, daily devotions, articles um, that you can use to, to kind of aid and give yourself a, a quick few minutes read on a biblical topic normally. Or the publishing house where Michael has, I believe, is it 16 books now? or um, A number of books, his <laughs> worship book. Um, and the uh, the uh, vocation book you can find over there. Maybe one day Jason will have a one day a book one day perhaps over there as well. Perhaps Jason is here. He is still part of the theology department due to the failed motion. Yep, um, which I noticed did not get a second even. Yeah, um, yeah, I did notice. that He's too. been missing <laughs> a fair amount for grad school. He's been in St. Louis. That's going well, Jason. Going well. Yep. And uh, and we have the um, the longest serving. Now the longest-serving member of the theology department, um, the Reverend Dr. Joel Pless. And uh, why don't we give you a moment, Joel? You can just kind of maybe introduce yourself to the listeners, uh, how long you've been here, what you teach, anything like that. Sure. I graduated from Wisconsin Lutheran College in 1986, and for 14 years I was a parish pastor in north-central Wisconsin. I served two congregations 15 miles west of Wausau. I was called here in 2000, been here ever since. And uh, and so we, we each kind of have our, our niche, I think, that's de- developing. But um, but Joel and Jason and I are all historical theologians. And uh, I do Reformation. Jason's kind of doing Reformation. Uh, Joel, your special interest in history, what you... I would have to say American Lutheranism, particularly 19th century... Um, do a lot in European 19th century Lutheranism, and my PhD was researching um, the writings and what George Steckart thought about the doctrine of the ministry. So the 19th century is for me. Nice. That is an excellent <laughs> century for that discussion. Well, we're happy to have you join us, and we're, so we're going to have four Wells guys sitting in a room talking about a, a Missouri Synod 
uh, event, and yet um, one that had a lot of impact on not just the Missouri Synod, but American Lutheranism. On, and on me in particular. You want to know why? Oh, I'm I curious. guess now I do. Uh, so uh, I'm the department chair, so. <laughs> department, always, department head. Department head. <laughs> I always have the, have the floor, right? Yes. And, and Wade, you are the assistant to the department to head. The yes. department head. So, <laughs> um, so in 1974, my father graduated from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, and uh, he was sent to St. Louis for the very reason to kind of scoop up disgruntled Missouri Synod members upset about what was going on. And there had been a core group that had reached out. And so I am a St. Louis Cardinals fan because of this very event uh, we talk about today. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's life altering. I don't know about the Cardinals for fan the part, better. but the rest is <laughs> for the better. Yeah. So the, the event we're going to be talking about, which again has a enormous impact on American and world Lutheranism, because you have a lot of different um, connections that had been established and has a very big influence on the Wisconsin Synod because Wisconsin's following this closely, having spent a, a long time in the Synodical Conference uh, together with the Missouri Synod and the ELS, which had been the Norwegians, and the what the Slovaks, that's the other one. Correct. Um, and that this is a Seminex, a Seminary in Exile that takes place at Concordia St. Louis. The anniversary is coming up. I'll let you all talk about it. If you go on YouTube and you put in Seminex, there's a couple like neat clips that have news stories from the time. Um, you can see footage of what was taking place. Um, but that's what we're going to be doing with our main topic today as we get there. So you'll have you're going to have some Wisconsin guys talking Missouri stuff, um, but uh, but in a, in a very involved way, right? It, we recognize the impact it had. Jason, you have our our disclaimer there. Would you mind um, giving us that disclaimer, please? Happy to. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our main topic uh, today, which is the seminary in exile um, that developed uh, out of Concordia, St. Louis back in the day. Joel is an alum of Concordia, St. Louis. Jason, do you get to be an alum yet or do you have to graduate to be an alum? I don't know how that officially works. Yeah, I think I think you got to graduate. So okay. I am. I am. He better be an alum at some point. Currently, a, I don't think they ask you for money until you actually yeah. graduated. I am currently a student. However, uh, I have I have a student ID and can qualify for student discounts now. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I am currently uh, doing my PhD studies there. So so, so half of our department has a, a connection in that way um, to the school, and maybe if I can just frame our discussion. So when I came into Lutheranism out of Roman Catholicism, 
I don't know that I had a full idea of like what Lutheranism in America was. I went to a Lutheran church. I'd gone to a Roman Catholic church. So, oh, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, um, took classes for about a year, year and a half to become a Lutheran. Uh, went a little longer than the normal process. Um, but one of the things I, I picked up is there was a lot of letters, <clears throat> LCMS, ELS, WELS, um, ELCA, a lot of letters. And uh, and then I went on to MLC, and I was still a, a pretty new Lutheran. And, and there's letters inside the letters. There's the, the BHM, the BME, <clears throat> right? Uh, then there's districts, SEW, Southeast Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, and you go, man, that's a lot of letters. But there were even more letters in early Lutheran American history, right? We we have less church bodies um, today because of church bodies joining and working together. A lot of that comes out of the different immigrant groups that come to America, um, sometimes ethnic background. You know, we've got Swedes. Sorry to mention Swedes, Jason. I know, I know you don't. I know, and our can be um, Norwegians, Germans. Um, and then within those groups as well, you have reasons that people came. Many of our... For four parents in the um, Wisconsin Senate came for economic reasons. The early Saxons, the Missourians, come for very religious reasons. Um, you can have very different experiences, how much they assimilated into American life, English, public school, stuff like that. And what we're going to be talking about today is coming at a time um, where you kind of have this um, desire to have these merging or, or coming together of the church bodies. You had had before this, um, correct me, until 1870, synodical conferences that started 18... July of 1872. 72, okay. Right here in Milwaukee. Yeah, at St. John's on the Hillside, which is a church worth visiting if you're ever in the area. That was uh, St. John's on the Hillside is the second building. I believe the synodical conference was founded in, in their first building. Okay, yeah. um, and uh, this synodical conference said, uh, we're not going to become one church body. We're still going to be our own church bodies, but we're going to work together. And so we're not one's not going to open mission churches where the other one's already operating. We're going to collaborate with resources. We're going to have our own schools, but you can bounce around, right? Uh, so the Wisconsin Synod still has its seminary in Mequon. We don't close that. You're going to have Concordia, Seventy, St. Louis, and then you, you had what, Springfield and then Fort Wayne, right? There's no predecessor to Springfield. I think that's... Um, so, so we're talking about at the founding of the uh, of the, the it, conference? So long as Missouri had two seminaries, the first, second seminary was Springfield, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. And then you'll, that's Fort Wayne today. So there's going to be a lot of these movable parts, and we're going to be talking today a lot about St. Louis, um, which is one of the seminaries. Um, and uh, I've got a lot of friends who are Missouri Senate pastors, and I know I know this is sensitive. I would say at that time, I won't make any statement about today, at that time the leading seminary, the most prominent right. seminary in the Missouri Senate? It was really founded, you know, in the spirit of the um, gymnasium of, of course, Europe. Mm-hmm. And the um, Fort Wayne Seminary, it had a different pedigree, but, but you know, Walther had his imprint from the beginning at the St. Louis Seminary. And I, I think I'm being fair to everyone by saying it was always considered to be the more academic of, of the two institutions. Yeah, and I think people might debate today if that's sure, the case. But, sure. but historically, um, and I know we have two biased 
We have a St. Le- yeah. Louis alum and a St. Louis student who gets discounts. That's right. Um, but maybe with that as the stage being set, Joel, why don't you give us, so you've mentioned Walther has his imprint at St. Louis. Walther, um, early president of the Missouri Synod, plays a very big role in the Wisconsin Synod becoming a more confessional Lutheran church body. Um, so you've got this seminary. You've got, over the years, kind of a dream team of faculty that, that is assembled there. Um, but now we get to a point where there's starting to be some shifts there. And, and maybe if you want to set the stage then, Joel, what's what's the background for what will be this this seminary in exile? How, what, what starts happening at St. Louis? Well, there's several different ways you can go. Um, I think I think the listeners would be familiar with uh, Kurt Marquardt and his fine book, Anatomy of the Explosion. Great book. He's got, you know, a very interesting under um, understanding of that there were two movements in the 20th century within the Missouri Synod. Believe he calls one counter-confessional, and and he points out to the fact that at believe the um, it would be the 400th anniversary of the um, of the uh, Lutheran Reformation that some Missouri Synod men out east began to practice church fellowship with some of the other Lutherans and then um, Professor Marquardt also talks about this counter biblical movement. I would like to talk about that a little bit yep. I would like to set the stage. Um, you have to start somewhere. Let's just start at the end of World War II. Um, the Missouri Synod had, had been known as a rather insular German church body, but now they have their first American-born president, John Binken. And what happens immediately after World War II or, or shortly after, um, somewhat associated with the organization that would become Lutheran World Relief, you had a number of Missouri Synod leaders and Concordia St. Louis Seminary professors go into these bad bowl conferences in Germany. And they interacted, they met, they were very much impressed with some of the German theologians. And, and in time, some of these German theologians who did not necessarily have the same high view of the Bible as the synodical conference had began to influence some of these men. So I, I think in the more recent literature and scholarship that you have of, of what would become the walkout, the Bad Bull conferences in the late 1940s certainly, certainly deserve to be mentioned, and I, I think there's plenty of room to study more. And then finally, what, well, well maybe not finally, but then... Um, Continuing the conversation, Wade, you begin to have in the in the 1950s, and I have talked to numerous Missouri Synod men, and it's it's pretty hard to pinpoint, you know, an, an exact month or year, but it's during the 50s. You have some exegetes from the St. Louis Seminary beginning to take an interest in what we, we what what we call negative biblical criticism. It's often called historical criticism, but people began, um, men who were entrusted with the training of 
Missouri Synod pastors began to be open-minded about in what way can we use modern scholarship, which starts as a premise that, that perhaps the Word of God is within the Bible, but perhaps we should rethink the fact that all of the Bible is the Word of God. Perhaps the Bible can become the Word of God, or maybe the Word of God is contained within the Bible. So I would, I would have to say that the Bad Bull Conferences and um, men like um, a young Martin Charlemagne, and then eventually Edgar Krentz and, and several other men, and um, some of these men, very interesting, had Wisconsin Synod roots. They began to, to come to St. Louis and slowly but surely, they began to introduce students or at least make students much more aware of, of course, negative biblical criticism. And if you doubt what I say, I mean, you know, read, read all about the experiences and, you know, what, what you know, Herman Otten experienced. He, he, he's, I mean, he's no longer with us. He's, he's gone on to his eternal reward, but this seems to be the time that, that of course, Herman Otten is at the seminary, and, of course, eventually that led to the founding of Lutheran News and then eventually Christian News. Yeah, uh, he, beca- he goes on to become a quite a polarizing figure. Yes, yes. But in the history, he's one of the, the first people to really sound the alarm of something seems not right in the classroom. Is it fair to say, do you think, um, Joel or, or, or Mike or Jason, if we're trying to talk about kind of higher criticism, so... We would, um, in the Wisconsin Synod, talk about having a historical grammatical approach to the scriptures, that you need to understand history to understand them, and you need to understand grammar. The Bible's using words that were given in a context. But the idea of historical critical, and I think you hit on the, the big issue, can we use modern tools now to, um, that, that the idea is we can treat the Bible just like any other text. Um, and in so doing, right, uh, maybe not consciously, um, but in order for this to work, for you to be able to treat it as any other text, there's a very there's a there's a narrowing of what is happening with scripture when one encounters scripture. Right. Um, there's a standing over it because I have to make decisions about where is the word of God or what is the rather than a standing under it. Um, I think a lot of our people would fall about in the, this type of thinking without realizing it when we talk about emphasizing how you interpret the Bible rather than how the Bible interprets you. Um, so if we were boiling it down for our average listener who's not as familiar with the history, kind of just treating the Bible like any other book, is that f- fair? Or I know it's simplistic, or do you guys think I'm wrong on that? I, I, don't th- I, think, that's, I think that's completely fair, and... Uh a young man who, who was raised in a Lutheran parsonage, he's credited with really that kind of verbiage, that, that expression, and that's Johann Semmler. Supposedly, Johann Semmler, who, who was a pioneer in negative biblical criticism in Germany, originated the expression, we need to treat the Bible as any other book, and he's also credited, rightly or wrongly, in saying, well, the Bible contains the Word of God. And, and um, these are the issues then that began to be more and more in play at Concordia Seminary St. Louis. 
And you can and, understand how attractive this is. Yep. Right. For especially at that that time, still kind of in the you know the starting in the later later modern period where it just wasn't all that acceptable to believe in a virgin birth, right? And so I think there was there was often an attempt to save Christianity from um, the yokels, <laughs> the ultra conservative, whatever. Um, you know, you'd have a, have a existential resurrection uh, or have the to save it from metaphysics, yeah, even to a degree. Yeah, the word of God in the Bible, all those kind of subtle subtle things. Yeah, and I think you know some of that too. It goes along with the idea of because um, I think there's kind of this growing um, feeling or desire within Missouri at this point too to have say we they're the they're the big guy on the block as far as American Lutheranism goes right and so the idea of we need to we need to have a bigger voice in the culture and on you know in the the religious scene yeah. beyond that right and so if you're going to do that you have to engage with some of these things and you have to you have to you have to play the same game that some of these and not to say that that's all what's happening but but that's part of it too is to say you know if we're going to we we want to be in the same room with some of these you know big european ideas and scholars and and so you got to you got to do something with that and it becomes like you said it becomes very appealing and very tempting you know cuz a lot of it sounds pretty good you know um but it has a some pretty big consequences too yeah. and and i think joel mentioned beginning with the post-war years um it's a very kind of american development as well too because in the post-war years um america as a whole and american life finds itself having a whole new weight on a global scale um somewhat after world war one already but especially after world war two um as you're having, for instance, in Germany, the denazification of the churches, right? This Erlangen, this is part of why Hermann Sasse leaves, is he had been very anti-Hitler, and he gets put in charge of some of this denazification, and there's, that's a long story. Um, but Missouri finds itself not only, like, the, the big player in American Lutheranism, because keep in mind, this is before you have the ELCA, which becomes the biggest American Lutheran church body by combining a bunch um, but it's kind of where a lot of um, German Lutheranism is going to mm-hmm. begin to look. And we sometimes forget how much practice Europe had with what develops in St. Louis um, before we did in America. America's always been behind the curve, if what, if what, if what we mean is modern, you know, um, scholarship, biblical scholarship, uh, when it comes to, to especially Germany. Um, the things that led to the historical um, critical method and the kind of the development of religious history, the idea that we can get at where, where there's commonality and different things that we can kind of like objectively stand over religion and then scientifically arrive, arrive at some principle, which is never the gospel, unfortunately. Um, although they try to make it the gospel in yeah. St. Louis with gospel reductionism. Um, that had been just going for a long time. Um, and so it's not just that these these professors at St. Louis are, are stepping in, you know, to, to something new. The waters are already deep, right? They're going right into the deep waters. And that is exciting when you first find something new. You can see why young seminarians would, especially at a time in American culture where things are kind of 
also shifting and up in the air. And here's maybe a way to um, be relevant. Uh, and it, you know, it can become um, a, a perfect storm. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, Joel, bringing this into the classroom. And, and I think that that's a part that's fascinating to me because we do have to bring things into the classroom. We're at a um, confessional Lutheran college. Um, we're all ordained ministers in a confessional Lutheran church body. Um, we know where the boundaries are. We've taken ordination vows. And yet at the same time, a good portion of our classes is talking about things that, that are not um, the orthodox view, right? Now, how you're going to talk about them is important, um, but we can't pretend that other, um, when I teach ethics, I can't just go, well, we'll just pretend Nietzsche never existed. You know, or or pick a thinker that someone might not like. Um, is your sense more? You said you know there's the possibility of they're introducing it to propagate it, or they're introducing it because it's out there and it puts it on students' radar. Where do you think this falls on that spectrum between the, prof the some of these professors really pushing it, and some of the students just latching on to it once it's it's brought in their periphery? Well, I I've been reading the memoirs of, of David Scare. So I, I, I think he was at St. Louis um, about the same time that, of course, Herman Otten was. I, I, my impression is, is that some of the men who, who began to introduce the historical critical method into their exegetical classrooms, um, there were various reactions. I mean, you know, some reacted... Um, much the way Herman Otten did, and and perhaps there was some in the middle. But but what what is really interesting is that it, it seems pretty early that uh, some of these men began to g gain some influential fo uh, followers who would later be leaders um, within the liberal movement of the of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So I I think it I think slowly but surely. It, it began to divide the faculty at St. Louis. Where there and, was faculty that wanted to promote this, not yes, just teach it. Okay. Yes, and, and I know, particularly if you read, if you read um, some of the works of Robert Price and um, certainly Davis Scare, there were certainly in the late 1950s, the vast majority of the St. Louis faculty members were, were, were certainly opposed to it. But... But things were beginning to change. And so maybe to bring the Wisconsin Synod back into this a bit, um, the Wisconsin Synod in, what, 60... August 16th, 1961. So 1961 will break fellowship with Missouri. Um, the ELS, so the Norwegians, had done that a little earlier. Yep. Um, the CLC uh, had broken from the Wisconsin Senate a little before that because they thought Wisconsin didn't break fellowship with Missouri um, early enough. And is it fair to say, so we don't have to get lost on this, that Wisconsin breaking fellowship with Missouri had almost nothing to do with this specific issue I, of higher I think criticism? That, I think that is fair to say, and I want to say that I interviewed Carl Lovrens for my... It would be my Master of Divinity thesis, which I wrote on the um, St. Louis walkout. I, I pressed him on it. Uh, Wade, I, I specifically asked Professor Lovrens, 
who was living in retirement at the time, did the, did the Wisconsin men know what was going on or what was beginning to happen at Concordia St. Louis with their view of negative and their use of negative biblical criticism? Lofren said, we did know, but they did not make an issue of that because repeatedly at their synod conventions, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod would pass resolutions which were very orthodox in their view of Scripture and, of course, inspiration. And so the, the break, and this can be another episode, the break is largely going to be about church fellowship yes. because of these kind of triangular fellowship relations that might develop or would develop as Missouri was talking with church bodies like the ALC and others. So for our Wisconsin Synod listeners, if you're listening, um, I just throw that out there so that we know this wasn't what caused, this wasn't the primary thing that caused the, that, the break. That is absolutely <coughs> correct. So if we're, if we're although if we're, although you'd say it's kind of indicative of a right. of a direction right like there's a it becomes a, something afterwards yeah, that the Wisconsin yeah. Senate is able to say see yep. we we knew right yep. things things weren't right but I, I've talked to a number of Missouri Senate people even who do think that's why we broke fellowship and, oh, and it, yeah. you know that it's it's just not the case my understanding it sounds like Joel's echoing that 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 was the driving force. Right. To to use the tep- the uh, terminology of the sainted Kurt Marquardt, we broke over the um, counter counter confessional issues, not the counter biblical issues. So if we're if we're back to St. Louis and we've had this now going on for a while, so that you've had students who were taught and are now ending up in positions of leadership at the St. Louis Seminary, as you mentioned. Synod conventions are still going pretty well. They're making great statements. Um, things are okay on paper. Um, this is maybe how, how we could put it. What is going to start to bring things in a he- to a head that will lead to a, a seminary in exile? What, why does this start to blow up? What, what begins to happen is, well, um, you cannot ignore the influence of Herman Otten. Herman Otten founded a little newspaper in New Haven, Missouri, Lutheran News, and then later it was changed to Christian News. He began to be a clarion about what was happening at the St. Louis Seminary and and how how the uh, intrusion of negative biblical criticism was beginning to influence the theology of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And... With the with the election of um, Oliver Harms as president, um, you clearly had in the Missouri Synod, as as Jason pointed out, you had a trajectory, Wade, in which began to take an interest in expressing: is is it possible to find um, agreement in doctrine and practice? With, with Lutherans that we have never been in fellowship before or certainly not for a long time. And really what I'm talking about is the American Lutheran Church. So so during Which the... Which was a, I might be mistaken, but again, another Germanish heavy yes, yes. synod, because some of the ELCA will come more from Scandinavian. Right. More Germanish, Midwestern, I think very Ohio-based was their seminary in yes. Ohio. The, the, um, the uh, church historian in me needs to point out that there was the old 
ALC, and then there's the new ALC. Um, I'm talking about the new ALC, which incorporated the old ALC. Okay. Okay. And this, and this kind of makes sense for them to be talking. We're, we're, we're Lutherans in America, yes. and we kind of have some common cultural history, and we're both want to be Lutherans in America. Um, how big are the differences? And um, the ALC also has some advocating. I mean, the ALC has a pretty good statement, I want to say, on it, inerrancy, the somewhat recent close to this, but has people who are, Logia had, we just, remember we had a Logia, I think it's not, it hasn't come out yet, but very interesting that there are some pushing for the same higher critical method. All right, so so they're starting to talk. Go ahead, Joseph. And then, you know, as as the 1960s went on, you have to under, I don't know the exact date, but what is also baked into the story, Wade, is that the Missouri Synod was very much, well, particularly St. Louis, the um, the um, Concordia Seminary St. Louis was in the process of accrediting its seminary, and and of course they realized that to do that we need PhDs. If if we're gonna if we're gonna offer doctorates, there's no way that we can offer doctorates unless unless our professors have PhD um, THDs or PhDs. So um, I I know that two mis- Two, two men who started off, um, both of them were from very prominent Wells families. They went and earned their doctorates in Europe, and, and, and they were the ones, um, th- these two men were two of the professors that, that soon joined the, um, the um, St. Louis faculty. So, so you have more and more men joining the faculty in the 1960s with doctorates, Many of them from Europe, many of them somewhat open to to introducing students who are studying to be Missouri Synod pastors to negative or they would say modern biblical criticism. And then, well, you cannot in in any discussion, you have to understand that when Alfred Alfred Fearbringer a descendant of one of the founding fathers of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, when he was ready to retire, um, through through some very effective politic, um, um, just synodical politics, John Tejan was secured to be the new president of Concordia St. Louis, and and Tejan was very open in saying, if this is going to be a modern Lutheran seminary. We need to have faculty members who teach the historical critical method, and we need to have future pastors who, who, who of course, employ it. And this, of course, um, th- this all came to a head then in the convention, which um, in the 1969 convention that elected Dr. Jacob Price to be the new president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and of course the die was then cast. And the and the the Preuss family, kind of well known in American Lutheran history, right. um, Robert Preuss serves a long time at um, Fort Wayne. Um, Jack Preuss, president of the Missouri Synod, both very um, fluent with uh, experts in kind of um, uh, you know the the Lutheran scholasticism. Um, that kind of the, the Orthodox Lutherans, 
And, uh, and so this will be important. Two things if we can step back a little, Joel. Sure. So A, John teaching, am I right in my impression that like this is a guy who's a handsome face, good speaker, like it, it, it's, it, it's a, um, as far as a guy to be the guy up talking about developments that, that he thinks should happen at St. Louis, this is a good figurehead from a PR standpoint, marketing standpoint. Um, but maybe sometimes uh, more confident in his ability to win the base um, than he, or at least the power players than, than he'll be. Um, but the other thing, if we back up just a little, we keep mentioning people are going to Europe to get their doctorates. Um, and uh, um, why are they, wh- what is the draw of going to Europe? Now, most aren't just going to Europe, but to Germany, if I'm not mistaken. I'm guessing there's not a lot of Lutheran institutions granting PhDs and THDs in America no. at this time. That that just wasn't the goal of seminaries at their foundation. Seminaries were to, to train parish pastors. You have stuff like a Union Theological Seminary or others, um, but uh, you know, not Lutheran or Lutheran adjacent, maybe in quite the same way. Is it just that these are seen as, in some way, being akin because they're evangelish? Uh, they're 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 nominally Lutheran institutions. Is there is it just a degree from Europe seems more prestigious? Is that all in player? What is the is it that someone's gone there and had a good experience, or the next guy goes? Um, what do you think is the draw of them going to Europe for their degrees? I, I think both of what you said is in play. And and growing up in the Missouri Senate, you have to understand that um, this is the area of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate Wunderkind, whether it's Yaroslav Pelican, Martin Marty. Uh, I mentioned um, in a recent book, Review, I mentioned Jack Elliott. You could include David Scare, too. But um, there was just a culture at St. Louis that if you were very sharp academically, um, you had seminary professors encouraging you to do graduate study. Some of it, some some of them did go to Union, but, but several of them, um, I, I think there was an element of prestige and, and, and certainly, you know, they offer doctorates that really no American university or seminary c- could offer. And I suppose if you're a professor encouraging a student to do that and you already have an experience with that place, yes. it creates a pipeline. Just an interesting side note with this, I think in American Lutheran history, this does lead a lot of these guys who are going in Germany, correct me if I'm wrong, and getting their PhDs are also very liturgical and, and find their way into the liturgical movement in Lutheranism, which leads to um, the, the make some of us um, sometimes in this room suspect suspicion um, in American Lutheran circles and Wisconsin circles as well of PhDs and being too high church or too liturgical, especially a clerical color, right? So um, the... Uh, I think that's something that's changed now. I, I don't get any grief about my PhD, and I almost never get grief if I'm wearing a clerical collar. But this will lead to, like, the battle of the Bible and post, where there is kind of a concern about too much schooling and where you're getting it. So teaching now is becoming more vocal about what the seminary needs to do, both for accreditation but also for his right. view of the church. By this time, of course, the the seminary at St. Louis is accredited, and I just want to make a side note that um, 
one of the men who was scooped up because he had a European doctorate was Robert Price. And, of course, he came from the ELS. Yeah. So, so I mean, yes, um, qu- quite a few of these men proved to be um, future members of the faculty majority and, you know, proved to be the liberal wing, eventually, of the Concordia St. Louis faculty. A handful of them were very conservative. Yeah. And, of course, Robert Price um, was the one who just provided instrumental leadership during during the dark days of the walkout. So we get, um, you mentioned the, the convention and things come to a head. Um, if you watch some of those YouTube videos, you can see Teachin asked for time to speak. And I, th- I believe, if I recall, he was supposed to kind of be repenting. And it's not much of a repentance statement that he makes. But how do we get to this convention being so... So we've mentioned Jack Price is elected. Right. Um, I believe I'm correct. The 1969 convention is when Dr. Jack Price was elected president. He defeated Oliver Harms. It was also the Missouri Senate convention that declared fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. So it's consequential for a Wisconsin Senate because this reproachment with the ALC had had been what had led to all the tensions that were arising. Right, and and the incident that I think you're referring to would be the New Orleans Convention right. of 1973. So we're going to get, um, Preuss is kind of one leading face personality, teaching as another. Um, both are, are academics or scholars, right? They yes. they, they know how to, to, to do this thing. Um, they're both intellectuals. They're both, I would say... Um, Powerful figures in their own way. Um, one maybe a little more polished, one a little more bulldogish. Uh, but there starts to be now a, a we're trending towards uh, confrontation. My understanding is now before we get to the convention, the big um, precipitates everything. Price is going to start looking into St. Louis. Is that fair to say? Correct. He he considered his election to be a mandate, you know, from the Missouri Senate, at least the conservatives within the Senate, to begin an investigation of the faculty and what was being taught in the classrooms at at, at Concordia St. Louis. And we, we could easily have another podcast on that too. Yeah, <laughs> and this is thankfully not the case ever at any other institution and certainly not ours or of any of us, But but faculty don't really like being investigated or being told kind of what to teach or how to teach or, or anything like that. That's kind of, you know, more seriously, kind of a universal in higher ed. Um, but that's not going to sit well then with everyone. You're going to have some who cooperate, some who are more combative. But the findings, um, the findings are going to kind of show what, Joel, what, is, what, is, what does Price discover from looking into St. Louis? The, the, the findings confirm what a lot of people had been saying for a better part of, 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 of two decades that, that yes, many of, the, many of the Missouri men, particularly the exergetes, and again, I want to emphasize this, some of these men had roots in the Wisconsin Senate, that, that they began to question miracles, and, and, and they just, as, as, you, as you earlier pointed out, they, they practice gospel reductionism. 
And, and, and finally, Dr. Price just could not, with a clear conscience, have Dr. Tejan as president of, of, uh, of the St. Louis Seminary anymore. And, of course, Dr. Tejan was, was suspended then in January of 1974. Okay, that would be 50 years ago. And, and that, of course, was, was the catalyst for the for the exodus of Concordia Saint Lu- of of the exodus of the faculty majority, and a considerable um, number of the um, and certainly the majority of the students at the Saint Louis Seminary. And this is making national news if you yes. if you watch YouTube. Uh, Jason, just to hit briefly with you, Joel mentioned it. A number of some of the, these professors came from the Wisconsin Senate. Yeah. I believe this is why you usually refer to the Wauwatosa theology as a gateway drug, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly the reason. Yeah. I'm just joking. That would be an interesting episode, though, yeah, uh, yeah, kind of the Wauwatosa theology and how this can spring. Not that it has to lead there. I, I very much appreciate it, especially Kaler. But, um, but I think with some of those Wisconsin guys, like there were, there were, there were people kind of picking, picking people, picking favorites out of the um, student body at Northwestern, I think, too, for that reason with – you know, influence because there was still kind of that influence with um, Missouri and Wisconsin at the time, or at least that's some of the stuff that you know I've heard at some points along the way. But yeah, I don't want to get too Speaking far. Speaking of, we should have an episode that's Wisconsin, Missouri, because you could do Peepers, Franzman. Um, oh yeah, there's a lot you could do. Yep. Um, so all right, I know we don't have a ton of time, so I got to stay disciplined here. Um, but Jason's gonna write down that episode idea sometime. Right. Um. So it, we have the 73 convention that is heated. New Orleans, yeah. Yeah. 74, teaching is suspended. Students walk out. Students walked out. Well, again, it would be both the faculty and the students. Um, February 19th, 1974. Which and is going to be the anniversary here coming up. What I, a... What a when we say the students walk out, I guess just briefly. So on this day, when we say they walk out, what do we like? I remember in high school once someone organized like a protest for something, and everybody like went outside for ten minutes, and then the teachers were like, "You dummies, you got to get back in class." And we went back in, and that was it. What do we mean by they were walking out? What well, was their goal or hope? It was certainly longer than ten minutes, Wade, but um, <laughs> essentially, um, there's quite a bit of. There's quite a bit of similarity of your experience in high school and, and what happened on that day. They walked off a of campus. Um, originally, I think the idea was is that, you know, they were going to form a seminary in exile and they were supposed to keep walking until they would be welcomed by another educational institution in St. Louis. Well, that didn't happen, but to make a long story short, they walked across the street. They, you know, the uh, seminary is on... The Mun Avenue. So essentially, they walked across the park, um, which is across the street from the seminary, and and then they were met by, I believe, um, a theologian, a president of a UCC seminary, and this, of course, was all done in the presence of the uh, media, yeah. and and so that, it wasn't spur of the moment. No, yeah. I want to make this very <laughs> clear. This this was very much a planned event. Yeah. Yes. When um, now, I'm trying to remember of that footage. There's crosses that are yes. kind of put up, like you know, mourning this event. I think there's they even write seminary in exile on one of the doors or something. Sure. That that of course, um, exiled 
is would they they took plywood they they painted it brown and then they they painted exile um, on it and then they covered up Walther's arch. Okay. Um, or it would be the Walther arch, and then, as I understand it, every single faculty majority uh, member and every single student who chose to walk out got a white cross and and they they planted the white crosses in the famous and beloved St. Louis quad and and um, a lot of pictures and and then then they of course staged a walkout which you could easily say was carefully orchestrated. Yeah, this was meant for the eyes. Um if I, am I wrong in recalling that a number of books make their way out of the library and never come back to yeah, they um the uh, St. Louis Seminary um, lost um, a considerable amount of property. Um, library books was only part of it. Yes, and so um, now I have some friends in the um, the ELCA, which is another product of later mergers, who um, will sometimes blame the Missouri for, Synod for some of their problems, huh. um, for giving them a lot of these these Seminex guys eventually. You mentioned kind of the Wonderkin thing. Um, there are some towering names that come out of the Missouri Center at this time, and then they end up, in Yaroslav Pelikan's case, outside of Lutheranism. Yes. Martin Marty outside of Missouri Center Lutheranism. Uh, and they do become influential in what becomes the, the ELCA. Does that mean every student who walked out did not end up in a Missouri Center pulpit? I, I would say, well... <laughs> One of the professors I knew at Concordia Ann Arbor, he was so traumatized by the event that he just left the seminary. He eventually came back. But I would, I would say the, um, the uh, vast majority of the, of the student minority went on to be conservative, confessional Missouri Senate pastors. I want to make this point in this very fine podcast that I was privileged to have several of them as my teachers, uh, both at Concordia Ann Arbor and then later at uh, St. Louis. And so the question becomes, so we've figured out kind of the students and professors, they've either gone or stayed, but we've talked about how long this teaching was present at St. Louis. Many had been ordained and were serving in parishes still. Um, And we got to wrap up, but but that will linger, huh? That that you sure. do have the influence of many of those who were trained under sure. these men, and, and and of course, this comes to play out in the formation of the Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches, what we would call the AELC. And then we have one little Wisconsin Synod connection, as this goes, some um, a, a Missourian who had been through the Battle of the Bible and becomes, I would say, a very formative professor at our seminary. Um, as far as you talk to people who went through in that generation and they they have stories, would be Siegbert Becker, yeah, that um, who uh, teaches a lot of men in the Wisconsin Senate and has written um, and, you know, um, and then other people recollecting stories he told a lot about what went on with this. But this battle for the Bible, as it sometimes gets called, definitely leaves a mark on American Lutheranism as a whole. Um, and uh, I probably opens up the conservative, the confessional Lutherans um, 
in some interesting ways to American Protestantism, at least the more evangelical fundamentalist side, because whereas before, confessionally, you would have gone, well, they're just something different. Um, the, the shared interest in defending the inerrancy of the scriptures um, leads to some cross-fertilization of things on this. And then later when the Southern Baptist Convention has a similar thing where, like Missouri, they for, and when we say liberals, we're not talking politically, although often theological liberalism and political liberalism and conservatism go hand in hand. Um, you'll have some affinity there. So you can have, um, uh, oh, who's the Missouri Senate pastor that says if you can't, basically Baptists are just, are just Lutherans without the sacraments. Or you know, kind of this, um, this view of we're, we're allies because of inerrancy. Um, you'll have kind of this, we're still living in, the, I would say in the Wisconsin Synod, um, both the doctrine of fellowship became very definitional for us because of the break with Missouri, but also the emphasis that we have on um, the doctrine of inerrancy will grow out of this. So maybe that brings that back home for us. Um, Mike and Jason, any last points, questions, whatever, before we try to wrap it up? No, I think it's good. I appreciate uh, appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing, you know, your um, inf- information and experiences there because, uh, yeah, this is something that, you know, we maybe don't think about as much or talk about as much, but this is a, a big Big event. When starting it comes to starting, to, be, starting yeah. to become literally history, not just something yeah. that yeah. Grandpa yep. did. Well, and yep. I have enjoyed it. We haven't. I don't think we've done anything on this topic before. Are you going to stay as a student at Concordia St. Louis, or are you now convinced you ought not be? Yeah, I'm going to stay there. Although it's kind of funny that uh, with I, I hope think he walks part of it, out. Part of it is yeah. with this anniversary coming up. There have been a couple of like. Well, I guess we might have to walk up. That whoa, whoa, you know, let's not talk. About, you know, so they'll kind of joke about that a little bit, but this is still very much something that's on their. Sure. On and I their will minds. say, yeah. um, when you when you hang out with people from the Missouri Synod, um, in any quarter like setting that they're talking theology, this is just it's part of the psyche, like that right. this happened. I'm um, still to this day, um, and uh, and so you know, Mark. Brown, our former colleague, talks about that with the break of the sentence and the tale of two sentence and how this just hangs, right, in the in memory. And I'll say that's the case with the Missouri Synod. Um, all right, Mike, I'll let you bring it to a close. Well, thanks, Dr. Pless, for coming on and sharing that information on this anniversary. It's always good to be connected to, to those historical things. So hopefully we don't make the same mistakes, right? And, and almost always when there's mistakes like this, it's the gospel that gets hurt, right? And uh, we, we want to maintain the gospel we're saved by grace alone and that from that freedom we can, we can be sure that we can go out into the world and do nothing but let the bird fly.